Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Women at Ropes Talk, a podcast series brought to you by the Women's Forum at Ropes and Gray. In this podcast, we spotlight extraordinary women who have had successful careers and interesting lives and are also making positive contributions in their workplaces and in their communities. We feature women attorneys at Ropes and Gray in conversation with prominent women clients, industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and others about their careers, the successes they have achieved, the challenges they've faced, and the hard-earned wisdom they've acquired along the way. I'm Joan McPhee. I'm a partner in Ropes and Gray's litigation and enforcement practice based in New York. I also co-lead Ropes and Gray's independent investigations group and co-chair the firm's diversity committee. On this episode, I am joined by my colleague, Helen Google, who is also in our litigation and enforcement practice based in New York. Helen, could you please introduce yourself and provide a brief rundown on your practice? Of course, happy to. I'm a counsel in the firm's litigation enforcement practice group, and my practice primarily focuses on two areas. The first is government enforcement investigations and proceedings relating to market misconduct, including potential violations of the federal securities and commodities laws. And the second is internal and independent investigations into allegations of serious wrongdoing, which can run the gamut from sexual misconduct to breach of fiduciary duty or other unlawful or unethical practices. Thanks. And can you uh, tell us a little bit about our special guest that you will be interviewing today? With pleasure. So I will be speaking with Carrie Robinson, who is the general counsel of Revlon, and who you were kind enough to introduce me to. Carrie is an incredibly engaging and interesting person on top of having an absolutely exceptional career. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with her. So I know it may be hard to isolate any one feature, but what would you say is most notable about Carrie's career? You are definitely right about that. You know, I've been particularly struck by how many different types of roles Carrie has had in her career. She's been in private practice, in public service, in-house, and she's consistently taken risks and pushed herself out of her comfort zone to take on new challenges when she didn't have to. So, for example, she took on her role at Revlon after a very successful almost two-decade run at IBM, and she could have comfortably stayed put and rested on her existing professional accomplishments and reputation. But she instead effectively decided to start over in a new industry with new people and push and prove herself all over again. And I think that's just remarkable. Great. Thank you, Helen. And with that, I will turn it over to you and Carrie. Carrie, you have had a particularly dynamic and multifaceted career in both the public and private sectors, working as a prosecutor in a law firm in-house. Can you describe your career trajectory and how you navigated your different roles over time? Absolutely, Helen. So um, let me tell you the places, and then I'll tell you how I got from stock to stock. <laughs> so I started started as a, uh, a litigation associate and did a spoken word well in New York City. And from there, I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I was prosecutor in the criminal division for about 10 years. Uh, and from there, I went to IBM, where for a large part of my career, I was in the litigation department. And then after that, was able to form my own team and investigations and cybersecurity team. Uh, and now I'm currently the general counsel at Redline. So how, how did I get from place to place? Davis Polk is a, is a more simple and direct story. It was a, an interview, uh, you know, on, on a, a law school campus and you know, uh, went through the interview process, loved the firm, firm apparently liked me, so the rest was history. The U.S. Attorney's Office 
When I was in law school, there was a visiting professor. Her name was Joanne Harris, and she was uh, helping me train for a national moot court competition. And she basically said to me, Carrie, after you finish your little stint at big law, you've got to go be a prosecutor at a U.S. attorney's office. So it wasn't really a suggestion. It was more of a demand. And I had a tremendous amount of respect for Joanne. So I didn't really think that much about it. And that's what I did next. <laughs> um, so I interviewed at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. I was at the Southern District. And what Joanne essentially said to me was, you're going to learn to be, you know, a lawyer from soup to nuts in that job. Um, you're going to learn, you know, good skills, good judgment. You're going to learn to be a trial lawyer. And she was right. I think Davis Polk sort of helped me build the foundation for being a strong lawyer and being precise and careful and knowing how to research and write. Uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office really was a soup to nuts job. It started with the investigation of a case. Uh, you did all the pretrial work. So there was a lot of writing. There was a lot of arguing in court through trial work. And at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you could argue your own appeals before the Second Circuit. So you really, you know, practiced all different kinds of skills. To go back to your, your time at the, the Southern District, I understand that there were not a lot of women in that position at that time. Is that something that you were conscious of during the period that you were a prosecutor or that impacted or affected your experience in any way? There, there were definitely fewer women there when I started than today, but there were trailblazers, plenty of them before me. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a good question, and, I, and, I, and I'm certain there were circumstances where I needed to assert myself or prove myself maybe a little bit more than my male counterparts. Um, one thing for sure <laughs> that, I, that I learned to do at the U.S. Attorney's Office was I have a total gutter mouth. I will try not to display that during this podcast, <laughs> but I definitely, definitely learned that there. And in part, it was really to sort of an equalizer for me. There were times, especially maybe, do, for example, doing a, uh, a, a proffer with a defendant where they weren't taking me as seriously as maybe they would have my male counterpart, where you know, a few well-placed, you know, curse words with the right sort of uh, emphasis, you know, which was more shocking to them, but it also just sort of changed the tenors. But, but you are right about the versatility involved. And I, you know, I learned so many skills that I use today with that. You know, you really do have a, a slightly different persona when you're speaking before, you know, a federal judge as you would maybe in a, in a defendant proper, or you would when you're speaking with your you know, colleagues and cajoling with them, or, you know, you would when you're speaking with a supervisor, you become very versatile and very skilled in, in communication because there's so many different audiences that you have to adapt to. You spent almost a decade at the, at the prosecutor's office. What was the turning point for you when you decided to, to make a decision and, and leave the office? Was it a particular moment or an opportunity that drew you away? It was it was a little bit opportunistic, but it was also a thought a thought process I went through. So I've been I've been at the U.S. Attorney's Office, like I said earlier, about ten years. I didn't really want to leave, but I started to say to myself, you know, unless I want to really be a career prosecutor, I have to understand what the next step was, um, and I didn't want to box myself in so that I wasn't marketable to do, you know, different things as opposed to maybe go the defense lawyer route, which was something that didn't interest me. And I also didn't think I wanted to go back into a law firm. I thought that being in-house in a, in a corporation would be interesting, but I didn't really know what that meant. 
at the time that I was thinking through that. And so one day, um, out of the blue, an FBI agent came sort of really literally bounding into my office, telling me that there had been a threat um, that was made against IBM and that we had a very short window to determine whether the threat was real or not and to, you know, get to the bottom of things. And so, of course, we did. And, you know, IBM was fine. Uh, but in the course of prosecuting, investigating and prosecuting that matter, I uh, I met with the then, you know, head of the litigation uh, department at IBM. And so once the case was concluded, I asked him whether he would uh, mind speaking with me and just educating me a little bit about what it's like to be in-house. And and uh, it's a longer story, but the short story is the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you made quite an impression on him. Well, you spent almost 18 years at IBM and in various critical legal roles, and, and you were named, not to embarrass you a bit, but by inside counsel as one of the top 100 female in-house lawyers. Having established yourself and cultivated such a distinguished career at IBM, you then made the very bold decision, and this is very appropriate because, as I understand, Revlon's motto is be bold, to shift gears <laughs> and take on the general counsel position at Revlon. Can you describe kind of your, your thought process in making that decision? I was deliriously happy in my career at IBM. And I got a phone call very much out of the blue from uh, the, the individual who was the general counsel at McAndrews and Forbes. And McAndrews and Forbes is Ronald Perlman's company. And Revlon is a public company, but a controlled company. So the, the GC at McAndrews called and asked me whether I would be interested in interviewing for the GC role at Revlon. And honestly, I just, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what I said in the moment because it caught me so off guard and I was so unprepared for that, for that question. But, you know, I guess, I guess if you're going to leave a career, it's a good time to leave a career when you're really happy in it, as opposed to dying to get out of it. But it made, it made the decision very difficult and it, and, and it was a very thoughtful process I went through. Um, you know, making a decision whether I wanted to leave something I, you know, I really enjoyed and a, a team I, I, you know, I loved and colleagues I really got along with um, to try something bold and new and different, completely different industry, different skill set, et cetera. So when I met people over at Revlon, it was really exhilarating and exciting and it's a very vibrant environment and, you know, very innovative and very fast paced. Um, but I, I really had to do some deep thinking about whether I wanted to make that decision. I know that might seem odd because some people may say we're being offered a general counsel role and you weren't in one. But for, for me, I really had to sort of come to terms with the fact that, that I, I was probably in my comfort zone at IBM and a little bit afraid to go out of it. And so I really, you know, I really had to sort of push myself out of my comfort zone to take on that position because I think it did take a lot of courage. And I think it, I think it required being bold, um, and I'm so happy I did it. I, I can't say that it was like a smooth as silk decision for me to make. I, I had to give it a lot of thought. It's interesting because I think the fact that it, it was outside of your comfort zone, it, it sounds like was both maybe a reason not to do it and also in your thinking through it, a reason to do it. Is that an element that, that ultimately pushed you wanting to kind of challenge yourself and explore new things? Absolutely. There's some people that are hardwired to just love the thrill of change and something new and risk. And they leap into situations like that and they don't really hesitate. And then there's some people that really like the comfort of what they know and stability and not a lot of change. 
And I learned through that process that I'm a creature who lives in both worlds. Like I like both. So a lot of my job over the past, you know, couple of decades really have been crisis management. So that's the part of my personality that, you know, is not, is not a, uh, not afraid to fight, not afraid for a challenge, you know, not afraid to do something new, not afraid to feel uncomfortable. But, you know, I'm also somebody who stayed in their job a long time. So I clearly am a creature of comfort and stability. So that's what I mean in terms of, you know, the difficulty of the decision. It wasn't, it wasn't, do I like Revlon? Would I be happy there? It was more, am I prepared personally to take on this, this, this challenge. And I have to say, you know, the one really wonderful thing about it is I had a really strong support system, not only in my husband, but my kids who are two adult kids. Um, I have a son and a daughter were, were just really, you know, supported me and encouraged me to go ahead and take the leap. So that, that helped me make the decision. It was, um, and it was, a, it was a wonderful sort of family moment too, for me. That's wonderful. And, you know, you mentioned crisis management, which I assume has served you particularly well, that expertise, because you joined Revlon, I believe, in 2019, so you didn't have very much time to get acclimated before the pandemic hit. How have you navigated the challenges imposed by the pandemic, getting up to tackle the learning curve through this very unprecedented period and in a new position? So, yes, you're right. I hadn't been in a position that long um, when the pandemic hit. I experienced what a lot of, you know, legal leaders and legal teams obviously all experienced at the same time, which is how do we navigate this? Um, how do you navigate the emotion, the fear, the safety concerns? How do you keep your business operating? What portions of your business can you keep operating safely? And what portions can you close and, and have your employees work remotely? I mean, all, you know, I, this is not news to anybody who's listening to this, but everybody's been through this. I, I have to say we, we had just a really smart, very focused uh, team um, who spent an, an, an unbelievable amount of time putting together a process that I'm really proud of and a set of protocols, obviously, that are still in place today. We had top focus, you know, dedication from the CEO down. Um, the most important thing on everyone's minds was how to keep people safe. Um, we obviously wanted to keep our business operating, but really the focus was on, on our people and how do we keep our people and our customers safe. Um, and we've managed, I think, really beautifully, from, you know, from a COVID perspective during this period, because we've managed to keep our manufacturing facilities open, uh, our employees safe, and and for those who are working in a remote environment, you know, we're getting all of our work done. Probably, I think people would probably complain that at Revlon and specifically, but maybe around the world that people are doing a lot more work, you know, now that they're working remotely than they were when they were actually in a physical office environment. Okay. But it has it, it has definitely been challenging and and a tremendous learning and growth experience, and also a horrible way to do team building. But boy, did it help build a team because our team really had to rely on each other's judgment and instincts to get things done and to move quickly and work late hours and whatever it took to sort of get the company, you know, through this this uh, this pandemic. Well, you're going through the trenches together and, you know, seeing everybody's uh, snippets of home life, which I, I imagine is is an interesting experience too, the blurring of the lines with, with kid cameos and dog cameos and, you know, everyone's backdrop. So it, it, it probably both accelerates, I imagine, and, and creates all sorts of additional 
layers of complexity to navigate. I love that part, actually, because you know, I'm somebody who definitely doesn't take myself too seriously, and I don't think anybody really should, but I love seeing snippets of people's you know, real and personal lives. And it doesn't bother me at all if somebody's dog is barking or somebody's child needs them because it's, it just, you know, it gives you a window into, into somebody that's not just their work persona. COVID has been just painfully sad and awful. But, you know, the, the, the little silver linings are, I, I do feel like I've gotten to know some of my friends and my colleagues on a more personal level because you see the inside of their home life. And, I, and I've actually really enjoyed that part of it. So interesting to hear you speak about your experience because it sounds from one perspective that, that the opportunities were almost serendipitous or, or you weren't necessarily looking for them. But the preparation, the relationships that you had built, the skills that you had cultivated with such care and, and devotion over years served you so well to kind of create this moment when things came to be and these opportunities presented themselves you. So are there things that, that you wish you had known along the way as you were transitioning into different roles or some kind of advice that you would give to others who are kind of starting out and trying to think through the course of their own careers? Yeah. So I, di- I didn't mean it to, to sound like it was all sort of happenstance, my, my career shift. Because it was a combination of good fortune, but also my taking advantage of an opportunity and, and making it into something. There's some people who are very lucky in their careers and literally just luck comes to them. Their career, their careers get molded or changed because somebody, you know, has really guided them along along the way. But that's, I think, a small percentage of people. I, I guess, you know, one, one thing, I'm not a terribly good networker, but obviously from the stories I've shared, you know, networking is important because my network did get me um, opportunities that, you know, it wouldn't have been available to me without it. And I, and I would definitely encourage people to network in a way that makes you comfortable. Like so, and it's so easy now to, 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 to maintain a network and, you know, and, and you can maintain it at whatever level is right for you. You can reach out, you know, periodically to people in your network or more often, whatever sort of suits your personality. So I think, I think that's really important. I, I also think you have to be open to change. You either have to be somebody who, is self-guided and knows exactly what their next career step is going to be, Um, you know, sort of plots it out. I wasn't a plotter out or I knew that, you know, five years from now I'm going to do this job and then, you know, five years later that job. But I did, I did have some sense of where I thought I wanted to go next and, and, you know, directed myself there. But I think, you know, if something does come in your direction that you're not expecting, like the Revlon opportunity came to me, I think you have to be, you know, open to something new and open to make a change or else you may miss out on a great opportunity. And Revlon for me has been an unbelievable um, growth, learning, um, career, you know, exhilarating opportunity. And had I, had I just reacted by saying so happy in my job and I don't really want to change and this seems like a lot, I would have missed out on that opportunity. So I think being open to change is something that people, you know, need to be open to risk. And, you know, you hear a lot of motivational speakers that say, if you're not uncomfortable, if you don't throw yourself out of your comfort zone, then you're not really growing. Um, And I I do believe that that's true. Um, And I do believe that I have, through each stage in my career, thrown myself into something that is, was challenging for me that had a steep learning curve. Um, you know, each job actually had a steep learning curve going from, 
you know, uh, Davis Polk, you know, doing commercial law to, to criminal law, um, you know, where you're completely on your own kind of at, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then going from criminal law back into a company, and then going from one cur- company to another. And you have to, I think you really have to embrace those challenges and take those risks to, to grow and learn. One might even say you have to be bold. Yes, I think you have to be bold. <laughs> and if yeah. I can put in a little plug, I think if you buy, you know, Revlon Cosmetics or Elizabeth Arden, <laughs> it might even help you be more bold. <laughs> so in your, uh, your various roles at, at the law firm, at the FDNY, in-house, you've had a, a pretty unique vantage point in our industry. Are there common traits that you've observed that differentiate superior lawyers from kind of the rest of the pack? Yes. I think to be a good lawyer, I think you have to have really good writing skills. Um, And by writing, I don't mean like long briefs. I mean, you know, you have to really be able to put your thoughts in writing succinctly. Um, I think the art of of being able to provide an executive summary, whether you're in-house or whether you're a lawyer at a law firm who's who's guiding your client to be able to condense information and make it you know you know make it in bite bite size and important pieces as opposed to long nosebleed emails that nobody wants to read. Uh, so I think that's really important. Oral skills obviously are I think uh, important. I think um, having good judgment is something that. I think you can improve on good judgment, but I, I don't I don't know that it's something that if you don't have, you can learn to have. So I think that the really skilled lawyers have very good judgment. Um, I've definitely learned throughout my career um, and, you know, the building blocks like I built and built and built on this, how important facts are. And, um, you know, there's some some lawyers who don't appreciate that aren't aren't going to win their cases. Right. Because the facts are really important. And you have to understand them, good or bad, uh, and then and then you know how to navigate the, the issues. And I think, you know, if I were giving guidance to um, my outside counsel on how to be a really good outside lawyer to an in-house client, I, I think, you know, it's great if you're super smart and you're a good writer and you have good judgment and all the things I just said. But if you take the time to really understand your client and know their business, but also know their needs. Know, know when they present a problem to you, that how, how, how they need to get, navigate their own company, their own, their own politics in their company, what, what they can or can't do. I think it's a, you're a much better counselor um, uh, to your client if you can navigate an issue along with them rather than dictate to them that this is what the law says and this is the safer approach and this is too risky and, you know, all of that. So you can be a good, you know, sort of, smart lawyer, but if you're not ready to sort of get in the trenches with your client and sort of understand your client's issues um, and some of the some of the stumbling blocks that they have just to get, you know, to get something done or get or, or move in a direction, then you're not the best counselor for your client. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. We we talked a little bit about the, the Zoom crashes and seeing a little bit about people's home lives and getting a, a personal component. And and I, your kind of CV to me is, is a particular wonder because in addition to your day job, which I know is incredibly exacting and, and demanding, um, you also seem to hold down basically a dozen others. 
working as a faculty member for the Cardoza Trial Advocacy Program, serving on the American Conference Institute's Global Anti-Corruption Advisory Board. You're a prolific public speaker. You volunteer for your alma mater. You are a mom to two kids. So there has been a lot of, of debate, obviously, about whether women can have it all and particularly whether they can have it all at once. Are there strategies that you have employed to navigate personal and professional demands at points in your life when they seem to be in conflict with each other? Yes. And I'd like to say that for the most part, I've done a really good job. Um, You know, work-life balance um, is very important to me. And I don't want to generalize because it's not something, by the way, that's that's important to everybody. So I'm just really going to speak about me. me. For me, it's really important. And I think it makes me a, a better rounded person. I think when I can step away from my you know, day job and do something, whether it's with my family or something just for me or, or volunteering and you know, something that's not my everyday job, I think I come back more fresh and more energized and more engaged. And look, I think I think you have to learn to set boundaries. And part of that is you you need to actually be bold enough to start to set them so that other people start to respect them. But but look, there are definitely points in my career, and I'm sure other people have experienced this as well, where it's more difficult to establish a work-life balance and you have to work a little harder. So, you know, so for me, when I first started in law and was just a baby at a law firm, you know, I really was at the a beck and call of the more senior lawyers or the partners. And I didn't have a lot of control over my schedule. And while there were times where you could establish a, a boundary, uh, you didn't really feel like you'd earned the right to do that. And it was kind of your job to just be there when they needed you. So I can't say that I had a, you know, a, a perfectly balanced work-life balance at that stage of my career, but it wasn't as important to me then either because it was before I started building my family. And so, so the sacrifices I was making were, you know, for my own, uh, my own sacrifice. Anytime you start a new job. um, So starting at Revlon was the same thing. You know, that it's going to be, if you want to do it well, there's going to be a lot of intensity and a lot of long hours and a lot of focus. And then, you know, your earlier question, when you compound a crisis like the pandemic and other sort of unexpected issues, um, you know, it makes the balance part of the work-life balance more difficult. But I think, you know, I think when people have respect for you and they want your advice and they and they uh, and they value you and they know that you're going to be there. By the way, and you're not going to leave them high and dry. You're going to get your work done. I think the more sort of gravitas that you have and you build in your career, the more people are likely to respect that um, because you don't abuse it. Um, but I, but again, I think, I think being able to, to do that and do things that are important and invigorating to, to you personally, just makes me a lot happier and I feel a lot more complete and I feel like I'm a better, uh, counselor and lawyer to my client when, when I'm feeling like my life is in balance. Thank you so much, Carrie, for, for sharing your time and your perspective with us. It is so invaluable, I think, for, for everyone to understand kind of how you've approached the various choices that you've made in your own career, the, the challenges and, and the opportunities and how you've responded to them and how you have been bold. And, and it, it is so, I know we keep saying it, and it really is not just because it's the Revlon tagline, but it really seems very apropos um, to the the themes of your kind of career transitions and, and the way that you've really dived into 
opportunities and stepped out of your comfort zone and challenged yourself at times when, when you really did not have to. That is incredibly impressive. And I, I think just fascinating to observe from the sidelines. So thank you. Well, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to do this. It was, it was a lot of fun and it's very flattering. And, and go out and buy something Revlon, Elizabeth Arden, you know, American <laughs> Crew, go for it. <laughs> Helen and Carrie, thanks to you both, Helen, for your always engaging interview style, and Carrie, for sharing your bold, fun, and dynamic self with all of us. And as always, thanks to our listeners. Uh, For more information about Ropes and Gray's Women's Forum and our women attorneys, please visit www.ropesgray.com slash women. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.